Hello, everyone listening today to People Are Wild. I have a very special guest who's a returning guest. I always like it when people return because, I don't know, there's something about it where I'm like, you know what, we need to learn more from this person based upon their background and their expertise. And in this regard, it's Nico. And you might remember last year, around February, uh, March, I did a whole series about organ donation, and I rounded it out by reaching out to my home state of Arizona to their fantastic donor network representatives over there. And that's how Nico and I connected. And behind the scenes throughout the pandemanium pandemic (laughs) that has been COVID, we've maintained some contact and we wanted to do a follow-up episode, especially in light of some of the more changing things going on. And really highlighting some more myths, I think we barely scratched the surface in our initial episode. Kind of more, I think, we talked about the process, but there's a lot of myths surrounding it. And that's kind of what we wanted to do today is uh, some myth busting. Uh, Shout out to, I guess, the Discovery Channel on that one. But yeah, Nico, if you want to introduce yourself again, and we'll kind of go through it. Sure. Yeah. And just to reiterate what you were saying, that I, mean, I was thinking about this uh, last couple of days since we had it scheduled. And I'm like, I, I'm excited that we're doing this again, because as you mentioned, we kind of just scratched the surface last time. And I think maybe discussed one myth, but because organized and tissue donation for transplantation is so complex, I'm like, and now we can kind of get a little bit more granular. So thank you for having me. Thank you for including Donor Network of Arizona in this conversation that we find really important and life-saving and healing. Just for clarity's sake, my name is Nico Santos. I am the Media Relations Specialist. That's a fancy title, sort of, for spokesperson for the organization. I look at it as internal journalist, since I have, uh, before this gig, about eight years in print and broadcast news. So I'm forever curious, always learning, and organized tissue donation for transplantation never ceases to amaze me, particularly when we get the chance to connect with either donor families to learn about some of our Arizona heroes or people who are recipients, whether it be organ, eye, or tissue, maybe someone had, you know, some people actually don't even know that they're a tissue recipient if they underwent a certain dental procedure, for example, or breast reconstructive surgery for cancer survivors, you might be surprised, actually, if you look at some of your medical records. You might be one, so pay attention because it uh, really touches people in so many unique ways. That's just a long way of saying thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. You're like me where you know you could talk about certain topics and then you kind of go off and realize, oh, I, I need to circle back before I get too far off. So with organ and tissue, just to, I guess, refresh people's minds, I work from the ER side of things where basically my role in the whole process is at the hospital side and contacting the local donor network. That is part of actually, we have some guidelines that happened when people do pass away in the hospital. There are things that we have to do. And one of them is that we always do call the donation representative in that state, being a travel nurse, I, I definitely called a few different states. And they ask us questions related to that patient, related to their history, and then also demographics and everything and patient information, because when you're registered, I mean, it does kind of go a long way making that 38-second decision, right, to become a donor. And finding them in the registry, I'm sure, alleviates some things about the wishes of that person. So. We kind of fill them in on the hospital side, and then 
it goes towards your side of things. But there's some things that we were talking about in our back and forth about maybe some things people have some hesitancy about. And I guess we could talk about, first and foremost, some of the medical conditions. Some people believe that, you know, if you have cancer and you've been receiving chemotherapy and, you know, you ultimately pass away, that you're not eligible to be a donor in that regard. And actually, I know from personal experience that that's not always true. I had a family member who had cancer, and when they died, uh, we were able to reach out to the donor network, and there was some discussion about whether or not corneas could be used. So, I mean, we can go in a little bit about a medical condition or treatments or different interventions don't automatically disqualify a person, right? Right. That is one of the leading reasons someone will either decide not to register, or sometimes we get calls or emails about certain individuals saying, hey, I am registered and I support this, but I have X, Y, or Z diseases or issues, so I would like to remove myself. But the reality is, really, regardless of medical history, anyone can sign up to be a donor. And one in particular, I want to go into more specifics in in a bit, but HIV positive, diabetes, history of cancer, substance dependence. Uh, Donors really come from all walks of life, and we're not here to judge your past. We're asking you just to sign up to be considered, because even with such illnesses, you may be able to donate organs, ocular tissue, or other tissues. And, you know, at the end of the day, when your time on this planet (laughs) has expired, there are multiple transplant professionals that are responsible for determining that. And that starts with, as you were mentioning, as a nurse, and you don't have to be a medical professional in a hospital setting to make a referral call. It could be a maintenance worker, honestly, that helps the hospital with the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services requirement for 100% compliance. Any in-hospital death, they have to call the organ procurement organization that services their area. And that's, you know, in our case, specifically at Donor Network of Arizona, the person answering on the other end is in... um, Referral and Donor Screening Services. We call it RDSS for short. You don't need to memorize that. But that's where the process starts and, you know, start gathering medical and social information, medical social history, I believe it's what it's called. So when people register or when we are asking them to register, you know, we're not asking them to to do like a whole medical evaluation on themselves. Let the experts do that. The yes simply means I want to be considered as a donor when I pass away. It's that simple. And the other thing, too, just speaking as a medical provider and touching base, kind of circling back to what we talked about in the first time, medical people, healthcare workers are not going to suspend any interventions or treatments if a person is a donor. Just because, you know, somebody finds a driver's license and they see that there's a heart doesn't mean all of a sudden we stop in the middle of a code and we stop doing CPR and we stop giving you medications. You just make note of that and maybe in the recesses of your mind, but as long as, you know, that person is in need of medical interventions, we are going to provide them. So that's something that I always want to remind people of that. I don't know if there's some Hollywood things or something, but I know sometimes it gets misconstrued that, oh, well, if you see the heart on my license, you guys aren't going to be aggressive. And that is completely not true. We don't want to put all the blame on Hollywood, but that is a big factor in kind of feeding into that urban legend that if you're a registered donor that you know we have this evil doctor or maybe not even evil just so you know emotionally 
conflicted if they know someone who needs a donation or something and, and while we we get it right that makes for compelling television but that's what it is it's television with reality tossed aside so a patient's level of care is not going to change based on what a medical professional even thinks their donor registration status may be every state is a little bit different in Arizona it is a donor heart on the ID and that is only if you register through an A.MBD office when you're getting a driver's license or a state ID or renewing it. But what if you registered online? Then you won't have the donor heart. So the donor heart on your ID is a really unreliable indicator when it really comes down to, hey, this person may not make it. Are they a donor? That is the reason that we were previously mentioning that the referral calls are required. Hospitals are required to report every in-hospital death because Donor Network of Arizona, at least within our states, is the only organization that can check and verify the registration status of a potential donor. So even if you have the donor heart on your ID, the doctor that is caring for this patient or nurse or any of the other medical staff really don't know for sure if that's even accurate. If I sign up, I can also remove myself from the Donate Life AZ registry but that doesn't automatically take the heart off my ID. In Arizona, particularly the driver's license, are, I think they expire in like 50 years. <laughs> yeah, I was like, especially in Arizona, you shouldn't trust an Arizona license because they have those super long, decades-long uh, expiration dates. So <laughs> I looked at mine the other day. I had to get it updated, and it says like it won't expire until 2050. And I'm like, I'm not going to look like that forever. I know, but I'm not mad at being able to keep my ID picture from <laughs> when did I move here? I think I was 27. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that for as long as I can keep it. <laughs> as long as you get away with it, right? Oh, yeah. But it is true. It is true. The fact that our licenses in Arizona are so long that, you know, you can't necessarily trust the decision made of the date of it's issued versus the day that that person comes in into your hospital and you're dealing with this process. So seeing a heart there that somebody put at an earlier time in their life, you definitely, you know, need to verify if that's still the case with that particular person. Absolutely. And, and an easier way to think about that is I've moved a few times since I got my state ID or, or it's a driver's license actually here in Arizona. So my address on that is almost as outdated as my registration status could be, even though I'm very honest and clear that I am a registered donor. So that's not a problem. <laughs> but anyone can change that at any time. It is not an obligation to stay registered. If you say yes at one point, you can always take that back. It's At the end of the day, when someone registers or not, or decides to remove themselves, what we really honor is someone's end-of-life decision. And sometimes that's a no, and that's okay. We just want to make sure people make informed decisions, which is why we're having discussions like this one today. Well, and sometimes, too, in the hospital, we reach out to our donor networks and those state organizations when a person is uh, determined to be uh, brain dead um, or in that sort of state. And there's some verbiage, and I might not be using it quite so politically correct, and I do apologize if that is the case, but there are certain factors that usually the doctor's determine whether or not a person might actually be in the process of being a potential candidate. And so even before a person does pass away in the hospital, sometimes we can actually reach out to the local donor network and sort of initiate the process towards uh, potentially having 
organ donation be something in the future for that person. So that is something I don't know if people really know or if that also gets a little bit misconstrued in the media about, you know, organ donation people being so aggressive with these families as their loved ones uh, laying uh, there in a hospital bed and they're hooked up to a ventilator and how dare they come in. And it's so not like that. It's a lot of really incredible work by people who step these families through every single thing, every single nuance and explain things at every single avenue uh, for these families to make the best decisions for that person in that state. So I do want to mention that, that we do sometimes start the process on people who are still alive, but no longer have the neurological capacity uh, or any uh, recovery from some sort of traumatic brain injury. And we do initiate that as well in the hospital. I believe that's the same in Arizona where there's certain criteria. I know it was in Nevada. There were certain criteria that we could initiate things with uh, the donor network out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know uh, if your audience is medical professionals or just like a general public, but yeah, there are certain clinical triggers that need to be met, which would prompt a referral call that you're mentioning here. But regardless at which time someone makes that referral call from the hospital, organized tissue donation is not an option until that person has passed away. Now, there is living donation, and we can talk about that in a little bit too. That's that's outside of the scope of the work that we do. So someone ha- is deceased donation. And I'm glad that you mentioned that kind of factor that sometimes there are claims of organ procurement organizations being too aggressive with families. I can't speak for all 58 OPOs in the United States, but Donor Network of Arizona rarely, it's rare, but it happens where sometimes the communication with families don't go as smoothly as we would like them to be, particularly because, you know, we understand what deceased donation means, the keyword being deceased. That means this family is in a really dark hour. They lost someone likely suddenly, often tragically. So the last thing we want to do is exacerbate that and make the burden worse for them. And in fact, there's so much training and effort that goes into a department specifically dedicated to communicating with the families of donors and potential donors to explain what the process is like, assuming that this person was previously registered. It involves getting to know what this donor is like if they are not registered to determine if organized tissue donation for transplantation aligns with the values of, of who that person is and who the family is collectively. And we're a pretty data-driven organization, which I think is great because we like to make statements that we can back up. And one thing that is defined as unplanned mentions of donation could be that medical professional mentioned donation to the family before even brain death testing came up or withdrawal of care or anything like that. Or if one of our employees mentions it too early, if it's an unplanned mention, based on numbers in 2018, I believe, we are 20% less likely to have a successful organ donation case if it requires next of kin authorization. So while we sometimes have to work very swiftly, aggressive is the last thing we want to be because at the end of the day, we owe it to honor this donor hero, and we owe it to, right now, it's about 108,000 people on the national organ waiting list. So frankly, sometimes we get called vultures. That's real. 
the, the claims are real. But that is the last thing we want. To, we don't want that perception, and we don't want it to be real. That's not how we conduct ourselves or communicate with families of potential donors. Because again, if their end of life decision was to donate to save and heal lives, I think we think that's a great thing to honor, and we kind of take the families under our wing and walk them through the whole process. And the aftercare program uh, lasts for at least two years after that. So that's an important point that you mentioned that I had, hadn't planned to talk about, but that's that's pretty important too. Well, and kind of going into, I guess, some of the stuff we were planning to talk about, we were talking about COVID-19 and how that has been probably, well, it's changed a lot of things systemically throughout the whole entire healthcare system. And I'm sure it has with organ donation and everything that you do over there. So what have been some of the changes since the last time we spoke was in the before times, I guess is what we lovingly call it. So how has COVID-19 overhauled your guys' process? Is it just some of the screening or does it go beyond that? Oh, it certainly goes beyond that. And I actually think that's a perfect segue since we were talking about our connection and communication with the families of donors. That has been like the major change that not so tangible, but visceral. Because as we were mentioning, we have a whole team that is dedicated specifically to contacting and communicating with the donor families. But with hospital visitation limitations that went into effect almost immediately and while that hasn't necessarily been lifted, they've kind of they've been morphing as we've gone along. They've evolved. So they're changing some places daily where our hospital development coordinators, for example, have to call daily and say, okay, what are the visitation limitations today? Can I be on site? Should I? Should I stay home and work remotely? And it comes down to under normal circumstances, pre-COVID-19, these people were able to meet in person with the donor families and make a true connection. And we're not able to do that most of the time anymore. Again, it depends on the hospital and, and what their restrictions are. So some of these conversations are happening, phone conversation with the families. Uh, one of the last resorts is text messaging, but it happens. It just takes kind of the human element away from something that we feel is so human, right? To give life to another person. I know that there are parking lot conversations with families, which is also less than ideal because if there is one person who's able to be bedside with someone who's passing away, which we know is also not always the case, but if we have to meet with them in the parking lot, we are taking some of their precious time to spend time with their loved one, to say their proper goodbyes. So that has made it difficult. It has made probably anyone who works in organized tissue donation would probably say that that's the most important thing that we do, connect with families. And we've had to get really creative with how we do that in, in such a confusing time for obvious reasons. You know, on the more technical side, Every single donor now, this is based on organ transplant center requirements, every donor has to be tested for COVID-19 because while if you had previously been infected and then recovered, it's not necessarily exclusionary criteria, but active uh, infection is mainly because we don't know enough about the virus yet. Can it be transmitted through an organ donation? And if we don't know, is that a risk we're willing to take? The answer is no. We have to test every single organ donor, potential organ donor, I should say. And if the results come back negative, then the, you know the whole process can continue. 
most people don't know because we haven't been very loud about it, but Donor Network of Arizona moved into a new office, which the construction for which started in March of 2019. We were planning to move in during the summer of 2020. And while that is technically true, we have moved. It is a ghost town. Clinical and on-site staff obviously have to report to work as normal, and we hats off to them because what has changed for them is that work is more intense, but they don't get to work from home like I do, for example, so that we can limit contact and exposure. And if there is an intra-office infection, if you will, we're able to do contact tracing. So we as an organization are trying to do our part to break those bridges of transmission and infection of COVID-19 while things are still you know, very much up in the air and uh, vaccines are in the rollout process right now. And there's still a lot to learn about this new vaccine. So as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people in the medical profession have had their worlds upside down, their professional lives turned upside down, but it's literally everything working from home. Grocery shopping is different, it is different for everyone everywhere. And we as an organization are not an exception to that. And it has been an interesting, to say the least, and an incredible 11 months now. I would imagine, I didn't even think about the fact that with the visitor limitations in a lot of hospitals, that's something I don't think about, I guess, now that you've brought it to my attention, that it does limit those personal interactions you have with family members and being there with them and actually sitting across from them, physically being there for them. And in that very heightened emotional state of processing, you know, what's going on, it certainly has to be difficult to have to do things in a more virtual or remote way, I guess. Yeah, it's something I didn't even think about, really. And it's at the risk of being a less personal experience, but it, you know, it's what we have to do in order, like we we're saying, we're just trying to do our part to break those bridges of transmission and support a really a global community in trying to handle a new virus. One day we look forward to kind of bringing more of that human element back in when when it's safe to do so. Well, I mean, for a lot of things, at least with COVID-19, maybe to segue it into a, uh, a next thing we were going to talk about is that initially with everything, we were saying to people, you know, this is affecting more of our older populations and to keep them safe. And now we know that it's definitely different. It's evolved. It's a virus that's mutating. So things are definitely different now than they were initially. But one of the things that we were discussing was, you know, in terms of age, is there a certain limit that, you know, if somebody's in their 80s or 90s, that they're excluded? Is that something that people need to be aware of? Or is that not true at all? Can you sign up at any age or be a donor at any age? So the myth that I'm hearing you're describing right now is one that we get a lot as well. I'm too old to be a donor. And uh, it's pretty similar to the answer that we have for medical conditions. I don't want to, I can't be a donor because I have this disease. No, not true. <laughs> There's no age limit to register as an organizing tissue donor. And the donors come from all age groups, really from neonatal to well beyond retirement. In fact, the oldest, this is according to UNOS, United Network of Organ Sharing. It's a federal or national nonprofit. The oldest organ donor in the US was 93. And just like when we're talking about those medical conditions, we really want everyone to consider themselves potential donors, no matter how old they are, no matter what ailments they may have, or you know, high blood pressure medications that they're taking, or the, uh, just a hypothetical example. 
at the end of the day, we just want you to say, please consider me. And then we'll let the professionals decide when you pass away. Well, that's also kind of reassuring, I guess, uh, 93, that, you know, as long as you're open to being an organ donor, there might be some avenue that you could help out somebody else at any age. That's actually pretty cool. I 93. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. It just goes to show what's possible. And um, I mean, if you don't mind, we'll, we can dive into that now. We were talking earlier about right now about age and previously about medical conditions or diseases and such. But um, let, let me put it to you this way. It's one that comes from the LGBTQI plus community that they can't donate because unfortunately there's a high rate of uh, HIV infection in the H- uh, LGBT community. But even with that, there's no federal regulation that excludes someone from the queer plus community from registering. And there is in fact, specific legislation pushing in the other direction. It's called the HIV organ policy equity act, otherwise known as the hope act that passed under the Obama administration back in 2013 and then was implemented in 2015. So what this does is now allow for the transplantation of organs from HIV positive donors to HIV positive recipients. And within a little bit more in the first two years, because it was November, 2015, when it was implemented by the end of 2018, there were already a hundred such cases. In fact, there have been a couple of cases of living donation between two HIV-positive people as well. So that really just goes to show the advances in medicine that for this situation specifically, that it makes it possible for people living with HIV to even be healthy enough to undergo, it's fascinating, to undergo such an elective surgery and still thrive with one less kidney after they save someone else's life and they're HIV positive. That was unthought of 20 years ago, right? It was a death sentence at one point. HIV was its own pandemic and it was scary and it was unknown. But now that with such advances, this is now possible. So we want people to think of other illnesses the same way. Hepatitis C is another example of that. We can do hepatitis C positive donations, even to people who are hepatitis C negative because there's treatment for that. So Let's say hypothetically, someone takes a, a liver donation from someone who is hepatitis C positive, and then effectively they'll be infected with hepatitis C. But after a couple months of treatment, their health is restored to even better than before they needed the organ donation. So if you have high cholesterol or diabetes, or you had cancer in the past, even let's just assume that all those were exclusionary today. No, you cannot donate. But if you register today, who knows what happens in the next 10, 15, 20 years? that by the time you pass away, it's going to be so different that had you not registered 10 years ago, even when you thought it wasn't possible, things changed between then and now. And that's that's how we want people to see it. Don't worry about those kind of things. Just register and allow yourself to be considered. The HIV one, particularly for the LGBTQ community, I think comes from, and, and I can relate, I'm part of the community, and I've been deferred from blood donation myself. That's one of those things that I get heated about is how, not to get too political, but how something that was enacted in the 70s and 80s to exclude donations from that community is still carried through 40 plus years later. And there's been no updates, even though we have come so far with our healthcare processes. So it's something that I personally am always trying to get the word out to people that, you know, we need to make noise about it because it needs to be advanced. Like it needs to be changed. It needs to be 
things need to be updated and excluded and taken out because it's very discriminatory. Well, I hope at least it provides you a little bit of peace of mind that specifically organ donation for life-saving transplantation is, is regulated differently than other avenues of donation. We had a slogan last year for Pride, LGBTQ, you can donate too. And that's true. <laughs> I added the two part, but it runs. <laughs> so, so yeah, like, I, and I understand, you know, it's kind of disheartening. I, I've been deferred for blood donation myself, and I'm like, oh, you know, ouch. But I can still be an organ, eye, and tissue donor. And for that, I'm very grateful that I'm still included and perhaps will be able to leave such a legacy in that way one day. And just for everybody out there, if you are part of any sort of policy or associated with any sort of policy and maybe have some sort of pull or whatever in terms of blood donation, reach out to me. I actually want to work with somebody on some stuff because... I know there's a lot of people out there that are trying to make strides for blood and blood product donations for that community because there are a lot of willing donors that want to help. I think COVID-19 highlighted a lot of it when people were recovering and wanted to donate plasma and to help out and they were turned away. I remember Andy Cohen made a post about that or an Insta story or something. And I think it highlighted people for people that didn't know that this was something because they're, you know, maybe not in tune with that aspect. And I think bringing more light to that is definitely needed for some other shifts in other ways. So I am very reassured that with organ donation, that's not something that excludes somebody. That's refreshing that at least in one aspect, you know, that is something that you can make that gift of life to somebody. But there's definitely room for improvement in other aspects. And we've had such cases, for, you know, for obvious reasons, we can't go into specifics, but Donor Network of Arizona has had such cases, people from the LGBTQ community, and, and we are honored that they said yes and trusted us to do such a gift of life. But 100%, everyone is included. Well, and then also we can circle around to, there's some people who believe that there's the religious aspect that sometimes comes into question regarding whether or not their religious beliefs do they fall in line with being an organ donor? And I was raised in a Christian faith household, Catholic faith household, and organ donation was like a no-brainer. Everybody in my family was like, of course, you know, but I don't know necessarily beyond that bubble if there are any sort of religious belief systems out there where organ donation is maybe not something. So do you run into that or do you have any sort of procedure or something that you you guys have to kind of be aware of when you're dealing with that sort of question from somebody? Certainly. The easy answer is this is also a myth. This one is a little bit different, though, because religion and spirituality is so personal to people. And, that's true, and, and right? That, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. I don't have a problem with that at all. But it makes it a little bit difficult to, you know, just puff your chest out and be the authority. Like, no, we know better. So when people have those doubts or say directly that uh, I don't think my church or my religion or temple or mosque or what have you supports this, uh, our kind of go-to conversation point about that is, you know, maybe ask a couple whys or, or, you know, where did you hear that? But then we request people go back to their faith-based leaders and communities to have a more open discussion about it to see what they really think. But on a national level, there here there are no major religions that are against organ donation. In fact, a lot of them see it as this 
huge, great final act of kindness for your fellow man. You mentioned that you grew up in a Catholic household. We have at least two popes on record specifically saying that organ donation has their support. And again, it's like showing love for your fellow man, which is you know very true to uh, Catholicism and Christianity. And sometimes, you know, there was recently, it was brought to my attention because we have multicultural outreach efforts that are led by someone else in my department, that there was a religious leader saying that they were, don't register because they're going to steal your organs. So sometimes when I hear people say that they don't think that their church supports it, it might just be that the leaders, much like a lot of people, you know, no offense to them, just don't have all the information. And that's okay. For us, that's a learning opportunity for us, you know, to do some outreach and have these conversations. But it just goes to show that it's not really the Bible against it. It's just misinformation. And that's why I have a job. I'm here to have these conversations where it's part of my whole department to educate the public. And you might even get as granular as um, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are known for not being able to accept blood transfusions. But organ donation is still okay because there is no exchange of blood in the process. It's the There's a certain type of uh, solution used in the organ perfusion and is prepared before it actually gets transplanted. So there was no blood exchange. And I know that's a major concern, and we respect that as well. But so even through that faith, organ donation to either save your own life if you're in need or to register yourself to offer it to someone else after you pass away that is in no way against that blood transfusion concern that the specific branch of christianity has orthodox jews this is just my understanding this is a little bit less familiar than other branches of religion i do understand that there is value in burying the deceased complete meaning no you can't take an organ and donate it to someone but the, kind of like a new age view on that is if you donate let's say you donate your heart and save someone even with an organ donation no one lives forever so the perspective is that heart still will end up buried as the orthodox jews kind of prioritize so that's kind of it's a little bit of a workaround but it's still in an effort to support this life-saving effort which is organized tissue donation so once again if someone listening right now still thinks maybe my church or my community or my specific religion doesn't support this, I don't care what Nico says. That's totally fine. I'm glad you're listening still. But go back and talk to your faith-based leaders about this, and you might be surprised. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is just a little bit of interpretation that might be just a, a little bit misinterpreted, which happens. You know, we're all human. But when you were when we're excuse me, we were talking about topics, the one about religion, I was like, wow, there's, I didn't, I didn't think there was any religion, sort of like the whole thing with vaccines, how, you know, some people say it's, it's, you know, against my religion. And and I've looked it up numerous times for people to say, most major religions don't really say that, you know, you can't vaccinate. Now, there's always offshoots and spiritual leaders in a lot of different religions who, have their own congregations, and maybe that's where things get a little bit murky with a lot of things regarding medicine and healthcare. And in that respect, that's definitely something where there's got to be a little bit more homework, I think, done behind the scenes than just maybe blindly or just putting all your your trust into that spiritual leader. So, 
without getting too political on some things, it's it's interesting seeing what some pastors and spiritual leaders have been saying in terms of this whole pandemic. And you're just kind of like, uh, that's a little bit of a gray area with what falls in line with other teachings from sacred texts. So it's been interesting. And I'm sure you guys get some people asking questions that sometimes occasionally throw you guys for a loop in terms of what is being said to somebody by their spiritual leader, as much as we probably also see it in the hospital. But speaking of, I guess, a little bit about burials and and rites for people as they've passed away, is there a misconception about people having open casket funerals because they're afraid, you know, they're going to be looking deformed or something or, you know, unrecognizable after they've had been able to to be an organ donor? Is that sort of a, a bit of apprehension that you guys run into occasionally? Yeah, we do hear that quite a bit. And kind of the message we want to send home is a, is a little bit broader, but it applies here. Organized tissue donors, it is essentially a surgery. It happens in an operating room. It's sterilized. It's exactly the same as any other surgery. It just happens to be that this person has already passed away. So all the processes and procedures are the same. And we it is done with so much dignity and respect for the donor and the donor family. And, you know, we invite even before recovery begins, we invite the family to uh, write some words of dedication if, if they choose to before a moment of silence. Now the moment of silence happens regardless if the family participates in the, the, those words of tribute. And some of them I read, oh my goodness, they will reduce you to tears within seconds. It's it's so beautiful what people say about their loved ones. But that's just one of the many details that really we want to put love and respect because they're giving the ultimate gift. Sometimes even in the OR when they're performing recovery, they'll play maybe one of the favorite songs of the donor, for example. So when recovery is finished, there's, there's a really careful restorative process as well. So if in your funeral plans, or if you don't have any and your family happens to decide to have an open casket, it's still 100% possible. Nothing about your plans for end-of-life decisions, funeral arrangements, and such should change, it, it, not based on donation. And like the restorative process that our team performs is even before we return the donor back to the funeral home of the family's choice. And you know, the funeral home also dresses the person who passed away, and there's makeup involved so that they look you know, great. So none of that changes. And without getting too nitty gritty, even in ocular donation, some people get a little, I don't know, squeamish about that, or it's a little cringy, but almost always it is just the cornea, which is thinner than a piece of paper. So you wouldn't even just by looking at someone in, in an open casket funeral, you wouldn't even know that they were an organ, eye and or tissue donor, unless someone specifically told you like, Hey, this already happened. Uh, so that is a concern that people have on a regular basis, but it's still uh, the funeral plans, open or closed, cremation or not, whatever the family decides to do, all of that will stay the same. So I am getting on my news ticker right now that I guess Kim Kardashian West officially filed for divorce from Kanye, which this is going to segue into my next myth. Is there this misconception that rich or famous people do get organ donations faster? I'm not saying KKW or minus W, I don't know, will need one in the future, but just saying, you know, for celebrity status, do they get to bump people up or is there something behind the scenes where, you know, they can get an in with somebody 
So the way that organ allocation is set up, allocation meaning who gets the organ after it's recovered and ready for transplantation, is done in a way to remove the perception or actual conflicts of interest. And that basically it's computerized. The computer doesn't know how much money a person has. The computer doesn't know if they're an actor or a reality TV star or a singer. So no, absolutely not. None of that has anything to do with how fast someone gets an organ. Money does come into play a little bit to get listed on the organ donation list, but it's not billionaires get there faster. It's just you have to prove that at least you can afford the surgical procedure and the medications that will come after. And uh, insurance certainly helps with that. Some people who have enough money to pay for it, you know, if they can prove that they can pay for it, even though they don't have insurance, then they also qualify. But celebrity status, no, is never a part of that process. Let me put it to you this way. So we very humbly consider ourselves, Donor Network of Arizona, a vital link in donation for transplantation, but we are not the whole service. There's multiple regulating agencies. Uh, There is a national organization that is involved in the allocation process, and then from there it goes to a transplant surgeon and the transplant center, eventually to the recipient. So there is no opportunity for one person to decide, like, hey, I'm trying to think of a celebrity who's gotten uh, an organ donation. Uh, Oh, George Lopez. Yeah, yeah, you read my mind. George (laughs) Lopez. But he got it from his wife, or ex-wife. Yeah, now ex-wife. Yeah, they were married at the time. And so that's and that's one thing that kind of maybe plays into that misconception because celebrity status and money maybe means you have a larger network of friends, family, fans who are willing to perhaps offer a living donation if it's kidney or partial liver and things like that. So it may seem like like whoa that was so fast, but even people you know average Joe like me, I've seen people wait as little as three days to years, and what it really comes down to is geography because it has to happen fast. And so if we have to transport an organ via commercial jet or a chartered airline to get it to wherever the recipient is, uh, that has to happen pretty fast depending on the organ. Of course, there's a whole bunch of histocompatibility elements that are, you know, have to be tested in a lab for antigen levels and blood type, body size, organ size. So it would be really difficult to bump someone up just because they happen to be a celebrity. It has to actually match. There's so many elements that go into that. So once again, no, rich or famous people are not getting organs faster, I promise. It sounds like it's not necessarily monetary as in like, if I put X amount of dollars down tomorrow, you're going to ensure that I have the organ, you know, that sort of exchange. It seems more that you were saying that you think about well, this is probably an expensive process for people to go through, but I guess I didn't know that you have to essentially have the the means and the finances in order in order to you know undergo the procedure. If I'm understanding correctly, and afford sort of all the aftercare and, and maintenance that comes along with being an organ recipient, because that is you know a lifetime of anti rejection medication and and all of that. So. I don't think about the monetary part because I know, you know, at least for us in the United States, this is not something that, again, it's a cash exchange of organs. That is not something that happens with these organizations in terms of the donor network and every affiliate through that. And even with the living donors, you 
you see people who have the the kidney trains and all of that, it's not necessarily, you know, people put money down and somebody gets paid to donate their kidney. That's not how it works in the United States. Mm-mm, that's actually very illegal. <laughs> yeah. There's a book called The Red Market. I don't know. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't, but I like to read. Tell me about it. It's a book that I ended up uh, reading a while ago. It's a book by Scott Carney, who also wrote The Wedge Method. So he's kind of into a few different things. He like studied with Wim Hof, the Iceman, if you're familiar with all that sort of breathing techniques and all that stuff. So The Red Market, the official title is The Red Market, On the Trail of the World's Organ Brokers, Bone Thieves, Blood Farmers, and Child Traffickers. So in the brief summary, it's all about this global underworld. It's nonfiction about the illegal trade of organs, bones, and ultimately live people. So it kind of steps it through with like people getting actual human skeletons from people who like to sell them in different parts of the world to the highest bidder. And then it kind of transitions into organ donation in different parts of the world. And there was something interesting in it that always stood out to me about how the United States is very altruistic with its organ donation. You know, it's non-for-profit all the way across the board. But it talked about how would they be theoretically, if we monetized, you know, if we said to people, if you become a living donor, because kidney donations rank among the highest need in the organ transplant need list, I believe, right? Kidneys, yeah, by far. So it was talking about how if we approached it from a side of what if we offered, you know, X amount of tens of thousands of dollars to people to be a living donor, would the needs, the supply versus the demand, would it all of a sudden become like a business for some people? It was very interesting, like some of the theoretical things it was presenting, but it just felt so icky to think about, you know, people wanting to, because it talks about how in different parts of the world, people do it because they, they need the money for their family. So they'll sell, you know, their kidney or something to that effect in exchange for money to hopefully make their family, you know, be debt-free or something like that. And it was interesting because I was like, whoa, if you did that in America, I'm sure the supply and the demand would suddenly be a different dynamic. But it just is, it would be odd because organ donation since the very beginning, as far as I know, has always been not-for-profit, altruistic, no money has been involved in terms of the actual organ itself. Maybe, you know, like you said, in order to have the procedure done, because at the end of the day, it is the actual process involves the medical procedure. So there are expenses with that and and the medications that go along with anti-rejection things. So that's a totally different aspect. But at the end of the day, it's all non-for-profit. But it was interesting. It's a book that I recommend people read if they're uh, interested in how other parts of the world approach organ transplants. Mm-hmm. And I like to read. I like to read. For, I like to draw from a broad uh, range of opinions. So that's something that I would be certainly interested in to see, you know, more specific what they're what they are talking about. And I mean, I'm not a math expert, and I'm much less a statistician to make any estimates or predictions of how that would change the waiting list for kidneys, for example. But I do know that one of the concerns, and you, I mean, you kind of mentioned it a little bit casually about how that feels icky. And I guess it does a little bit feel icky because I think the the not necessarily the reality, but 
there is a potential there for it to prey on people of lower income or lower resources. So then that becomes like an ethical issue. Exactly. And that's what it talks about is that it talks about in the book about how you see people who are in these very low points and have, you know, they're in a poor socioeconomic uh, classification. And this is their way of providing for their family or, or having their family set. And that's a huge decision to say, I am willing to undergo the removal of one of my organs with the hope that it's going to protect my family and, and keep them okay, but it's not a guarantee. And also, what if that person gets sick? It becomes that whole ethical, moral dilemma that, you know, is probably a great question for some college. I don't know if you can make a prompt out of it about if you could, if you can monetize organ donation in the United States, you know, what are the ethical dilemmas around it? Because it would, it definitely would be a draw to people who, you know, for the right price could see it as a, a way of, you know, I, I just need to donate a kidney and my family's set or I'm out of debt or something. And it's like, well, no, that's a big decision that should be made out of a lot of time and reflection and discussions within yourself. And and if you need discussions with, with somebody else who knows the process or or you want to reach out, that's the people that you go to. And it shouldn't be because well, they're dangling a carrot in front of you and and that's something that, you know, is an incentive. So it definitely was an interesting read. If anybody's interested out there who's listening and in uh, reading that book, do so and then get back to me. I would definitely like to know your thoughts about that book because it's interesting. You don't have to look it up after this. I, I was very enthralled with it, but it left me, like I put it down and it left me going, huh, that's a new way of thinking. <laughs> and not necessarily in a great way, but it was just kind of like, ooh, I guess, you know, going back to people who are rich and famous, would they supersede others? Or, you know, would they have their own network, their their own organ network, if you will, in terms of what they would need or something? So, yeah, it, it definitely opens up a lot of questions about moral dilemmas that would go in there. So I kind of think it's amazing that in the United States that we we don't monetize it and we don't necessarily charge people for needing an organ beyond, you know, healthcare costs and and everything involved with that. There's not somebody that you pay to like get you a kidney. Correct. Yeah, it's actually legally defined as an anatomical gift. So what's a gift? You don't pay someone to give you a gift or vice versa. So it is very illegal to buy or sell organs. In fact, the recipient doesn't even have to pay for the solid organ donation itself. Of course, there are other costs associated that we already talked about a little bit, like uh, the process actually of the recovery, the transplant surgery itself, any medications required, but no one is buyer, buying or selling organs in the United States. And if someone tells you that, it's essentially a conspiracy theory that is based on no facts. And kind of aligned with the book that you're mentioning to be clear there are there are some countries in the world that are suspected of questionable practices when it comes to organ procurement i'm not an expert on that either i know for example like the spotlight is on china sometimes and that's something you have to do your own research on as i don't want to say anything online or or inaccurate but the united states does not operate like that it's against federal laws violators can be punished with prison sentences and fines and kind of another way to think about it as we already mentioned when we we're talking about celebrity status like you can't force allocation like you don't know 
who a potential donor is going to match without doing a robust histocompatibility test, right? So even if someone were to illegally, very illegally purchase an organ, again, it doesn't happen in the United States, at least. If they bought this for themselves or their family members, they don't have enough information to know if it's even a match. And if you know, are they just going to walk into a hospital and say, "Hey, like, can you put this kidney in me?" No, that's just so so ineffective and beyond illegal. I feel like that's such a Hollywood thing to think of. Is that you know, there's a guy that needs a kidney, so he ends up buying it off of some global red market, black market, you know, dark web thing, and then goes to a hospital and and makes people test it and then implant it. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. You'd have to have a whole team of people on the payroll in order to even find the right person and test against it. So yeah, it's it's definitely maybe more in the land of make-believe. Yeah. And I've seen that like in movies and things like that. It just makes me so sad because, I mean, I get it. You want to make compelling TV or movies or something, but it's probably the one of the main myths that is actively preventing the gift of life from happening because people are scared that that's going to happen to them. And so just like, please don't do that. It's not real. We are highly regulated by multiple organizations, federal agencies and programs like CMS, the FDA, so many things that will never happen. So I do have maybe one question left to kind of close this out and it might be a curveball. There's all this chatter about, you know, 3D printing and bionic things being in the future in terms of bionic organs. There always seems to be, I come across a lot of patients who are talking about a bionic kidney or a bionic pancreas that these scientists and researchers are working on. And I know we're knocking on the door of that probably being something that is very much a reality in not probably the not too distant future. But where do you think organ donation and everything will come into play with some of this? Because there has to be regulations involved in it. I mean, if this becomes something that's like a treatment modality for somebody, you can't just go and make this off of a 3D printer or do something in your backyard. You know what I mean? Do you think the landscape is going to have to evolve within the donor network's in terms of when we get to this point where maybe technology meets people halfway and you have these bionic devices that are involved, do you think that donation networks are going to have a little bit of the brunt in terms of regulating? Or do you think that there'll be an offshoot of sorts with regulating? Oh, well, you weren't kidding about curveball, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. Because this is completely hypothetical in in some ways. Like, yes, the research is there for a lot of bionic and different sort of devices. I know for certain there's this one company that is very much saying, like, we're right there with getting bionic pancreases. And uh, I talk to a lot of people who have insulin-dependent diabetes who who, you know, show me about the companies that they're watching or dialysis patients who show me about these companies that are based off of the research of so-and-so and and working in different labs. So I kind of wondered about that. I said, hmm, I mean, is that going to be a future for organ donation? What if there's these artificial man-made organs that are also in the the network, if you will? I think we're closer to that than than we are not. And the reason I say that is because while at this point – a human donated heart, for example, is better than an artificial heart. Same thing with heart valves. Artificial heart valves are an option. 
animal-derived heart valves are an option, but at this point, it is still better if it is a human-donated heart valve because the recipient doesn't have to take blood thinners. A human-derived heart valve that's transplanted helps fight off infection much better. But let me put it to you this way. Two kind of main things that come to mind for me. What our organization stands for all comes down to making sure no one dies while waiting for an organ donation. Now, we are not there yet, but we are getting better every year. In fact, this uh, 2020 was the 10th consecutive year in the United States that organ donation continued to increase. So we're making strides in the right direction. We also, if something is not available, it's already been recovered, maybe it's a solid organ or some type of tissue, and then it is determined that it is not viable for transplantation after. With family authorization, sometimes those organs and tissues will be used for research. And one of the avenues of research is specifically for preventing the diseases that put people on the organ waiting list in the first place. So it's like if we have less people on the organ waiting list, then maybe organ donation will be less urgent in the future. We're okay with that because we want to reiterate that we don't want anyone to die waiting for a life-saving transplant. So if it's specifically about... 3D printed organs or something along those lines that sound very futuristic and fascinating, but people are looking into this. Uh, I would have to go back to uh, some of my um, executive leadership to see what their thoughts are on that because it's actually not a discussion I've had with them. But uh, I know that our organization just really has that one goal. We don't want, and collectively, OPOs across the, the country, we just don't want people to die while waiting for a life-saving transplant. So what we can do to support that, we're there. Yeah, it's a very fascinating sort of medical forefront going on with the merging between more bionic and 3D printed and everything that goes in between in terms of implanting devices in people. It's always changing and it's always exciting, but it definitely probably will change the landscape, hopefully, of organ transplant and donor needs in the future, hopefully. And yeah, for and again, that for the us, that looks what that looks like is people aren't passing away while they're waiting. Every day, twenty people die waiting for a transplant, and every ten minutes, a new person is added to the national organ waiting list. So that's really kind of us keeping our eye on the horizon. While, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that in the United States it has gone up for the tenth consecutive year successful donation, both living and deceased, which is great, and we're excited for that. We still have a lot of work to do and a lot of lives to to save. Specifically for Arizona, let's talk a little bit about that kind of a, at a glance, what last year looked like. In spite of a global pandemic, we're so honored that Arizona's generosity hasn't waved. And it's the, been a big these, year. These families, oh yeah, these families just, uh, they just literally like blow our hair behind us or they leave us in awe regularly. So get ready. In a nutshell, 2020. 811 lives saved by Arizona organ donors uh, alone. There was a total of 311 organ donors, 1,644 tissue donors. To be clear, some of those are are double, right? Because one organ donor could also be a tissue donor. Sometimes it's tissue only. Same thing with ocular donors. We have 655. 60% of donors were registered before they passed away. So they had made their decision very clear. We have a relatively new program through which we had 47 birth tissue donors. And that's something we can talk, we can have a whole hour <laughs> about that in the future. <laughs> That'll be the next this time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And one thing that 
Donor Network of Arizona is particularly proud of is the 390 heart valve donors from last year alone. That was the most in the United States ever for a single organization. And why heart valves? It is essentially a tissue donation, but it is a life-saving tissue donation. 76% of the time it goes to pediatric patients. And so if you're thinking pediatric patients, it's neonatal to 18. This kind of donation saves the lives of people whose lives really hasn't even gotten started yet. So that's a really special accomplishment for us. And it's only possible by the donors and their families who are on board with us and trust us and want to save and heal lives. Well, and we should mention we're recording this during February. So February is the big month for heart health. And it's also uh, congenital heart defect awareness month. So I have worked with people who have had children who've been saved by donations of heart valves, who, you know, their their children are active and they're playing baseball. And it wouldn't be possible without that gift and that decision that was made so you know, amazingly by that person, that person's family. And so it becomes that full circle moment where, you know, you see pictures of their kids and you know that it wouldn't be possible because of somebody else's gift. And, and being February that we're recording this, uh, we know February 14th is Valentine's Day. It also happens to be National Donor Day. And for us specifically at Donor Network of Arizona, we've coined it Valentine's Day. I like it. I mean, in Arizona, it's Arizona's birthday. That's what I was always celebrating. Yeah, that's also true. I'll switch it over to uh, to Valentine's Day and National Donor Day. <laughs> yeah, because we have such a, an emphasis on that. And, and frankly, for Donor Network of Arizona, the emphasis on heart valve donations started when uh, we realized there was such a need. We, you know, we were already recovering it, but we wanted to make it really clear. And while we were already doing this type of recovery, there's power in, in deciding to do something with intention, even if you're already doing it. So we made that a focus in 2019, and and actually the waiting list for heart valves, pediatric size heart valves specifically, has gone up since then. So we're working hard, and once again, nothing like that is possible without the donors and their families. Nika, do you have any final thoughts or any social things in terms of social media you want to uh, blast out there to everybody listening? Tell your friends if you're registered. Uh, if you haven't registered, consider it. You can go to donatelifeaz.org and sign up right now. It was, it was briefly mentioned earlier, but we've done the math, and it only takes 38 seconds. Of course, you can do it at the A.MVD, one of our biggest partners, and, and they're very supportive of us in so many ways beyond the registry. But I, I just let me just paint a, a few numbers here. We've mentioned them, but I want to kind of like send it home. We have more than 4 million registered donors in the Donut Life AZ registry. So that's a little bit more than half of the adult population, which is amazing. So we have 4 million registered donors. And in Arizona, there's 1,700 people on the national organ waiting list. And, you know, on the surface, it seems like, okay, job done. We have enough, right? No, because the reality is between 1% and 2% people of people go on to actually become organized tissue donors because of all the complexities that are involved. So we want everyone to register, say yes, so that we can have more people to consider as donors when the time comes. Because who knows, really, if you could save a life. And that's one of the most amazing things. Tissue donation, you can help up to 75 more. We mentioned that. And because of advances in technology, ocular donors could help restore the vision for up to four people. Like they're splitting corneas in half now. 
I could talk about this all day, every day. Really, it comes down to please consider joining the Donate Life AZ registry on DonateLifeAZ.org. Perfect. Well, thanks for being here again with me, Nico. I always enjoy our discussions, and I hope everybody that is listening has a little bit more clarity. I hate using that word because I watch The Bachelor too much and they always say clarity. But I I mean, it's applicable here. I do hope that we are helping people to dispel some of the the myths and, you know, giving you more information about the facts behind things. I always like to tell people I am in no way sponsored by anybody. If I was, I would tell you up front. So I am just a nurse that has seen firsthand how incredible it is to be that person that that gives the gift of life. And I really want to promote that for people. And if you have any questions on anything, definitely reach out to your local Donate Network or whatever they call themselves, Donate Life in your state. And having this the discussion gets the ball rolling. At least it, it helps to sort of plant the seed. So, you know, I always talk to people about have the talk about end-of-life care. That is one of the things I always like to harp on. And end-of-life care involves organ donation talks as well. Um, It's not just the wishes that you have in terms of a living will, uh, in terms of advanced directives. It goes into what do you want in terms of organ donation. So please include that in your talks with your loved ones. And hopefully, you know, people just see that this is an incredible gift that is made out of love and that there's compassion and there's respect and there is a sense of honor all the way through that decision and the person that ultimately becomes an organ donor is treated with the utmost respect. I couldn't have said it better myself. It took me a whole hour for you what you said in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We Whenever we get together, we talk a lot. And it sounds like we're going to have to talk a lot more in the future about some of the uh, more complex things about newborn organ donations and tissues and perhaps even the world of cord blood. but. That is a world I don't venture into as much, but I am always willing to learn because I know it's an interesting process. Yeah, so to be clear, though, the birth tissue donation is uh, placenta and in the future, potentially umbilical cord and amniotic fluid. But that is considered a living donation. There's the mother who's the donor, not the, not the newborn. But I mean, if you want a, a Mother's Day show or something, I'll come back as many times as you'd like. Cause he... <laughs> we always have topics to talk about for sure. And that's why I always appreciate Nico taking time out of his day to talk with, with me and inform hopefully all of you better than I could. Because I guess my process is only one part of this whole entire chain of things that has to go in the right way in, in order to make things happen. So it's always interesting to actually hear about what happens after I make that phone call. So this has been always fun and hopefully informative for people out there. If you have any questions or you don't know where to turn to, you can always email me. My email address is usually included in the show notes, but sometimes I forget if I do. So it's peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. And you can email me there if you have stories you want to share or if you have questions or if you want to hop on the podcast and talk about your own experience with organ donation or even I know initially I had somebody reach out and uh, wanting to talk about bone marrow transplant. Let's talk about that. I think the more people have these discussions about things that we're not familiar with, it helps to make it so that you have some sort of knowledge base. So 
please, you know, if you want to share your story, if you want to come on the podcast, whatever you want to do, definitely reach out to me and we'll go from there. Thanks again, Nico. Thank you. And I know we're going long, but I have to say this, if that's okay. Uh, Because you mentioned that you only see one part of... uh, one link essentially in this chain that is donation. And I want to make it very clear that people like you, nurses, doctors are again, one link in that chain, but a very important part of that entire process. Even if it's just the beginning is the beginning of something amazing and spectacular. And you're just basically starting a chain reaction of love and generosity and people like you Uh, You and others like you, I should say, have continued to do that even through a global pandemic. So without people like you, our organization wouldn't be able to do what we can and so on. So thank you so much for your dedication, even under really extreme, difficult, unique circumstances that is the COVID-19 wrench in the gears. Uh, So my hat's off to you and everyone in your profession. And thanks so much for your time today. Well, we get through it together. It's all about teamwork.